0: Alright, so I'm just going to jump right in and start reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read that entire chapter and then we'll we'll sort of summarize it and then get into chapter 6 right away. Kind of talk about that some and summarize it and then, time permitting, we'll go back and answer some of the questions. Alright, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. But what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves it is for God. If we are in a right mind it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, I said that chapter 5 is all about perspective. What is perspective, anyway? What comes to mind when you think about perspective? way you look at something, a point of view. I've got a couple of definitions. Hopefully it's not too small that you can't read that there, but I'll I'll read it for you as well. The first definition I found was the art of drawing solid objects on a two-dimensional surface so as to give the right impression of their height, width, depth, and position in relation to each other when viewed from a particular point. Okay. Okay. The second one, and I really like this one, it's the same answer that Nathan gave a particular attitude or way of regarding something, a point of view. It's a way we look at something, that's our perspective. Now, one way to demonstrate proper perspective actually kind of combines both of those definitions um, is through something called 3D sidewalk art. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing before, I'm sure. My apologies to those who are just listening to this lesson. You're you're not going to be able to see this with your ears. But let's say that you're walking past this artwork on the sidewalk. Uh, You might stop and stare at that for a good long while and still not recognize what it is. There's a lot of green there. Whatever it is, it's very long. You can see that it stretches all the way from that utility pole there in the upper left of the picture. There's what appears to be this big, elongated eyeball. I mean, is this some artist's rendition of some alien or something? Kind of hard to tell, isn't it? But if you look at it from the right perspective, if you have exactly the right point of view, It looks like that. Obviously that's a giant grasshopper. It appears to be attached to that utility pole on the street. The pole is real, by the way. We pointed that out in the previous picture. But that grasshopper, well, that's just chalk on the sidewalk. The point of view is so important to getting the right picture of things that that artists who specialize in this kind of artwork will usually set up a small viewing window on a tripod. And they want you to look through that little viewing window in order to see exactly the art that the artist intends you to see. And the point I'm trying to make here, same point Paul makes, is, you know, life is messy. It's not always possible to see life from the proper perspective, because we see things from wherever we happen to be. And from where we are, from our perspective, life just kind of looks messy sometimes. There's trials, and there's tribulations, and there's just a lot of chaos. And it's easy to, to lose perspective, or even to forget that there is a proper perspective where everything just makes and Paul is reminding them in this letter, beginning with the last couple of verses in chapter 4 and then extending into chapter 5, that it's all about perspective, even though he doesn't actually use that word, perspective. Uh, in chapter 4, in verse 17, Paul talks about our light affliction. This is the same Paul who said in verses 8 and 9 of that same chapter, chapter 4, that we are hard-pressed on every side. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We're struck down. This is the same Paul who was stoned and left for dead at Lystra, if you'll recall, in Acts chapter 14. This is the same Paul that talks about tribulations, about needs, about distresses, stripes, imprisonments, and sleeplessness later in chapter 6, which we'll read later. And again in chapter 11 of this same letter, he's going to recap his sufferings for the cause of Christ. Five times he had received 40 stripes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, shipwrecked, three times. Spending a night and day in the deep in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of wilderness, in perils among false brethren, he says. Can any of us say that we have suffered the way Paul suffered? And yet he uses that phrase, "light." affliction So how could Paul having been through all that and knowing there was more yet to come talk about this light affliction because in as he continues there in chapter 4 and verse 17 the sum of all that was but for a moment but for a moment compared to eternity. Not only does he reference the short duration, but that a huge benefit, a huge reward would come from those afflictions. Now that's perspective, isn't it? For those that walked in late, it's difficult sometimes to get perspective unless you're looking at exactly the right spot. We need to remind ourselves sometimes that no matter how bad things may get here in this place, no, no matter how messy, no matter how skewed things may look to us, there is a proper perspective. There is a proper point of view where everything makes sense, and, and that proper point of view is through God's eyes. You know, we can read the book of Job, and Job had a skewed perspective, didn't he, until God showed him the right perspective until he looked at things through God's eyes. What is the only way we can see the world through God's eyes? By by reading and studying and meditating on what God has revealed about himself, about his will for us and for our lives. You know, we can read the Bible and, and in a sense we can know the beginning from the end, can't we? The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know. The Bible tells us everything we need to know. We can know how it all started, can't we? We Pick up Genesis and begin with chapter 1 and verse 1. We can turn to the book of Revelation and we can see how it all ends. We can see the world through God's eyes. We can have the right perspective, can't we? In chapter 5, we see Paul looking beyond faith fleshly suffering, to this hope of eternal life. Paul talks about this earthly body. When he calls an earthly house or a tent, you know, when we hear that word tent, we we, we think of a, something that's a temporary dwelling, don't we? He's telling the Corinthians, if this tent is destroyed, we have something far better waiting for us building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I couldn't help but think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 when he said, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And so if we take the words of Jesus there and we, we... Add it to the words of the Holy Spirit here, we add that dash of perspective. What we realize or should realize is that we should not fear anyone or anything that can destroy this body. Why? Because if this body is destroyed, we get a better one. Paul expressed the same thing in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. You'll recall when he said, For to me to live as Christ. To die is what? Gain. Paul is saying, you know what? I want to live because by living it benefits Christ. But if I die, well, that benefits me. So, as Christians, we may need to change the way we view death, the way we talk about death. I'm not saying we should live our lives recklessly. Paul's not saying that either. But neither should we allow the fear of the death of this body to have such a grip on us. Because think about it. How can we long for the next life while maintaining such a grip on this one? Paul mentions in verse 2 there in chapter 5 that because of the frailties of the flesh, we yearn. We, depending on your translation, we groan. We earnestly desire to have our bodies transformed into this glorified, eternal body. A body that will not be subject to all these frailties. Paul talks about mortality being swallowed up by, some translations say, immortality or by life. The fragility of the container. Wait, is that a word? Fragility? How how okay? How fragile a container is is not important. Paul had already talked about these earthen vessels. You think of a clay pot or something very fragile, but how fragile the container is is not important. What's important is the treasure inside the container. And Paul talked about it in chapter four, verse seven. <clears throat> Paul then tells the Corinthians that there's a judgment coming, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10. And the Corinthians, and and by extension, we also need to live our lives with that very thought foremost in everything we do. I mean, the, the decisions that we make in life, how different would they be if we simply viewed those decisions through the lens of eternity? Who I decide to marry. The kind of jobs that I pursue. How I spend my time, my talents, and my money. What do those things say about me and about my perspective? Paul then talks about this ministry of reconciliation in verse 18. Now if that word ministry sounds a little bit familiar to you, from our studies here in 2 Corinthians is because Paul used that word a lot back in chapter 3. Recall he was making a comparison between the old law and the new law. He referred to the old law as the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. He referred to the new law as the ministry of the Spirit and a ministry of righteousness. And by the way, that word ministry comes from the Greek word diaconia. Diakonia. which literally means servant or service. And by the way, it's the same word we get our English word deacon from. Now, the word minister is often used today to refer to someone's preacher. But a minister is anyone who serves in some capacity. And their ministry is what they do. It's how they serve. We should all be ministers, shouldn't we? That's not something that should be left to the preachers or to the deacons. Paul tells the Corinthians that God has provided this ministry of reconciliation, which is this, in verse 19, God put on flesh, and he became the ultimate servant, reconciling the world to himself in the process now that word reconciliation means to restore favor. Sin separated us from God. Sin put us out of favor with God. And God put on flesh in order to provide a way for that good favor to be restored. Now just points to ponder uh, on chapter 5 and we'll We'll stop for a few comments and then move on into chapter 6. But points to ponder, chapter 5, no matter how bad things may get here in this place, no matter how skewed things may look to us, there is a proper perspective, a proper point of view where everything just makes sense. And that's going to be through God's eyes. We need to do what we can in our studies to learn to see the world as God sees it. We should not fear any one or anything that can destroy this earthly body. Why? Because if this one is destroyed, and, and really it's a matter of when, not if, right? When this body is destroyed, we get a better one. And finally, judgment is coming. Be prepared. So we'll drill down into some more of the details. Time permitting, we come back and go through some of the questions. But let's move right into, oh, I was going to stop for you. Any, any quick comments? Nathan's got one. Anyone else want to say something and we'll,
1: Okay. think sort of in light of everything you have here and talking about the point of view and when we look at life in general through God's eyes, through scripture, not just in the aspect of what he wants us to do, but also in our defense when we're looking at life through all the tactics that Satan has out there to bring us down and, and trying to see things clearly in that aspect and then joining that in with you know our earthly bodies and, and things of that nature taken into account the past year and the, the viruses came on not saying the virus was was for that purpose but the fear that that has come upon many of us and how it's limited us especially in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and and our spiritual lives and all that stuff not letting that fear subdue us enough so much to where we're not feeding our souls we're not feeding our our spirits the way that we should be because you can't replace and i think david's lesson about about the idea of live streaming um here recently was 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 profound an aspect of you can't replace that that connection that we have when we're together like we are here today and looking at it from that those those perspectives like you're talking about is is what we need to do if if you know Understanding that these physical bodies are temporary, but our souls are forever, and what are we doing to enrich our souls? And Nathan, that made me think
0: of uh, something I, I sometimes will ask, and let's just use COVID 19 as an example. Will, will COVID 19 matter in 2,000 years? And I think back sometimes to the rich man and Lazarus. You know, how he was laid at the rich man's gate, starving, covered in sores. The dog, dogs just licked his sores, they said. There's not much more pitiful state that a person can be in than that one. But here we are 2,000 years later. Did it matter? What matters is, Not what happens to us, but how we handle what happens to us. All right. Any other quick comments? All right, chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read through that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, from the English Standard Version. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. I I sort of titled this chapter The Problem with Paganism. Even even though the word pagan and paganism is not used here, uh, Paul is telling the Corinthians not to look at the world around them the, the way the heathens or the pagans would look at it from a human perspective. Don't look at the world as the way those who do not know God would look at the world. And the fact is, I could have just as well have titled this, the, the Problem of Thinking Like the World Thinks. <clears throat> and, and Paul discusses this in three areas in this chapter. In attitudes, in, in their actions, and in their associations. Now, If you're you're one that likes to take notes, I would encourage you to write that down. Maybe even the margin for chapter 6. Attitudes, actions, associations. We we need to be constantly evaluating our own attitudes. Our own actions. Our own associations with the world around us. In their attitudes, Paul warns them in verse 1. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, that word vain, what does it mean? Vain. Empty. empty. Useless. Worthless. The same Greek word here, which is kinos, kinos, is used to describe places or vessels that contain absolutely nothing, they're just empty. You know, if I go on a camping trip and and I take a canteen with me and I don't put anything in it, what good is it going to do me when I get thirsty? Just the fact that I took the canteen with me, maybe I even unscrewed the cap and I tilted it up to my lips because I'm thirsty and I'm hoping there's going to be some water there. What good is it going to do me if I didn't put any water in it? canteen is empty. It is kinos. Keep that in mind as we discuss this. What is grace then? Very common definition we hear is what? Okay, An unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Paul is telling the Corinthians, and of course us by extension, that it's possible to receive the grace of God and yet, to receive it in vain. for the grace of God to be completely empty to us, worthless. Whenever I think about grace, I, I can't help but think about a number of other passages. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine come to mind, but also Romans chapter six and verse one in the following verses. where where Paul is essentially saying that the grace of God is not a license to do whatever we please. I heard a preacher use the following example one time about our attitude toward the grace of God and how the blood of Christ works in relation to that. And and that illustration kind of stuck with me, and I wanted to share it with you. Have you ever heard of something called whiteout? Whiteout? or liquid paper. And I know very few people use whiteout anymore. <laughs> the population of people who've never heard of it is growing every day, I'm sure. So there's probably going to come a time when this illustration means absolutely nothing. But I remember a time back when we used something called typewriters. Yeah, nod your head if you remember that time, right instead of computers and printers, we had typewriters and If you were typing on a typewriter and you made a mistake, which we all did, some like myself, more than others, you could back up, you could apply some of this white out to, to cover up or to blot out that mistake, and then type correctly over that spot and continue. <laughs> But, you know, no one ever sat down to a typewriter with the intent of just making a whole bunch of mistakes so that you could use that whiteout. Whiteout was never intended to give someone an excuse to intentionally make mistakes. And so it is with the blood of Christ, with the grace of God. The grace of God is not a license to sin against God. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 6. Paul goes on to warn these uh, here in in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians also about procrastination. He he says, now, now is the day of salvation. Today, not tomorrow. Because, of course, we are not guaranteed a tomorrow, are we? The, The mantra of the procrastinator is, why do today what I can put off to do until tomorrow it always makes me think of Felix in Acts chapter 24 you'll recall that Paul was talking to Felix about righteousness and self control and the judgment to come and Felix was trembling because of these things but Felix said to Paul go away for now when I have a more convenient time I will call for you. Felix was procrastinating on those things. Someone else once said, I'm not a procrastinator. I'm just extremely productive at doing unimportant things. I saw that on a mug somewhere. I think it was Cracker Barrel. And I had to write it down because I thought, well, that describes me perfectly sometimes. (laughs) I'm not a procrastinator, I'm just extremely productive at doing unimportant things. But you know, when it comes to our souls, the part of us that will last forever, nothing is more important than doing what needs to be done today. What an absolute travesty it would be for any one of us to exit this life, to stand on that That very precipice overlooking eternity. And the only thing we can say is, if only. If only God had given me just one more day. Paul is telling them, don't procrastinate. Today is the day of salvation. Live our lives with that in mind. Live our lives with that perspective. As to their actions, it it seems from his first letter that that some Corinthians had taken the path of least resistance. You'll recall some of that. They'd fallen back into heathen practices. Paul appeals to his own life and ministry as an example to them in verses 4 through 10. I mean, there was a reason that Paul endured the things that he endured. And it wasn't because he enjoyed living a pain-filled life. There are so many other things Paul could have done to escape all of that. And Despite all of that, Paul seems to be saying in verses 11 through 13, we open our hearts to you, now open your hearts to others. Don't allow your own affections, Paul says. The love of this world. To limit what you can do for one another. And finally, in associations, Paul warns them not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers there in chapter 6 and verse 14. If you're not familiar with this word, a yoke is a device normally used to join a pair of animals together, especially oxen. You know, a yoke was an instrument of work. But it's also sometimes used metaphorically in the Bible to refer to a sort of bondage. Paul would use it that way in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. He said, um, he talked about being entangled again with a yoke of bondage, referring to the old law. The point that Paul is trying to make here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is that Christians can only be rightly or equally yoked to Christ. You'll recall a familiar passage in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And he finishes that up by saying, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's going to be difficult sometimes being a Christian So how is that yoke easy? Compared, well, looking at it from the proper perspective, compared to eternity, compared to the reward that awaits us, what a light burden that is. We we can be yoked together with other believers, and if we're all properly yoked to Christ, then we are equally yoked. And in, in contrast to that, Paul expresses this idea of being unequally yoked. You know, what is the danger of being unequally yoked? Well, for starters, let's picture a farmer yoking together two strong oxen like you see in this photo here. Those two oxen working together can accomplish at least twice as much, maybe more, than each ox working independently of the other. Sometimes refer to that as synergy, right? And that's what it means to be equally yoked. Now picture the same farmer yoking together a strong ox with an ox that is sickly. Now, I got this photo where most of us get these kinds of photos out on the internet. I don't know if that ox on the right is just uh, resting. But it serves my purpose. You kind of picture this strong ox and a weak or a sickly ox. How well is that going to work out for the farmer? That strong ox can't even do as much as it could have done by itself because it's carrying twice the load and probably the the weight of that other ox. This is a a concept that I knew all too well when I was flying uh, Black Hawk helicopters in the Army. It's a, it's a twin engine helicopter. And you wanted both engines to be roughly the same health and the same power. And there were tests for that that you would do before you went to fly. That's so they could both adequately share the load. And that's the same concept as being equally yoked. But, but if one of those engines ever started underperforming, the danger was that the bad engine could, could drag the good engine down with it, and that was never a good situation to be in. People sometimes use this passage to justify a, a point that they are trying to make about marriages between believers and unbelievers or business relationships between Christians and non Christians. Of course, with, with, uh, with most topics, we need to consider all of what God's Word has to say about a subject and 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 this certainly is not all of what God has to say about marriage or about our relationships with our fellow men but there is a general concept here that that should not get lost in the weeds of those discussions and that is as Christians we should do our very best to see the world through God's eyes and recognize the potential danger in in somehow binding ourselves or yoking ourselves in some way to someone or to something that may drag us down. Because when that happens, at best, it makes us, it can make us ineffective workers in the kingdom. And at worst, it could cost us our souls. Paul asked five rhetorical questions to help explain this concept there, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 6, he says, What fellowship or what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What communion does light have with darkness? What accord or what agreement does Christ have with Belial? Now, Belial, by the way, is a word that means worthless one or wicked one. And in my Bible, it's capitalized. So uh, one could presume that this means the wicked one, Satan. What part or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And of course, the answer to all of these is what? None. Righteousness does not partner with unrighteousness. Light does not commune with darkness. In fact, light displaces darkness, doesn't it? When's the last time you opened a door at night and the darkness just sort of spilled into the house? doesn't work that way. The light spills out into the darkness. Light displaces darkness. Christ, the Holy One of God, does not shake hands with the wicked one. The unbeliever has no part or portion with a believer. And can you imagine idols in the temple of God? It has happened. It continues to happen metaphorically. And anytime it does, it's an abomination to God. Paul concludes chapter 6 by exhorting them to holiness, there in verses 17 and 18. Come out from among them and be separate, he says. Come out from among them and be separate. I mean, that's a quote from, well, just about everywhere in the Old Testament, right? Some points to ponder from chapter 6, and I think that'll probably finish us up. We need to get out of the habit of thinking about things the way the world thinks about things. Not only in our attitudes, but in our actions and in our associations. The grace of God can be received in vain. In the end, if that happens, it's not going to do us a bit of good, is it? It's to be just like that canteen with no water in it. Today is the day of salvation. And don't allow, we should not allow our own affections, the love of this world, to limit what we can do for our brethren. To limit what we can do for others. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, I've got uh, that our time has expired. Uh, We may come back next week and hit one or two of these questions. But um, otherwise, we're back on schedule. So next week, Chapter 7, we'll be able to slow down a little bit and, uh, and get to the questions. So make sure and do those. Thank you for your kind attention.